The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Richard Oswald. He is a full-time farmer. He's also a writer and a poet. He lives in the house where he was born near Langdon in northwest Missouri. He grows dryland and irrigated soybeans and specialty corn, as well as hay and pasture. Some of the land Mr. Oswald farms first homesteaded in the early 1840s by his great-great-grandfather and has been operated continuously through six generations of his family. Mr. Oswald writes a column for DTN, Progressive Farmer, titled View from the Cab. He also writes Letters from Langdon, a commentary on rural life and farming that appears on DailyYonder.com. Mr. Oswald is president of Missouri Farmers Union and sits on the board of directors of the Organization for Competitive Markets. I had a chance to hear Mr. Oswald speak at a recent conference called Rural Life Day, and I thought that what he had to share about what he has witnessed on the farm over these years was worth bringing to all of my listeners. So welcome, Mr. Oswald. It's a pleasure to have you. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure to be there. Well, I guess the first question I want to ask you has to do with your experience on the farm and how things have changed. One of the things that you mentioned during your presentation was how you used to be able to go to the bank and just with a handshake make an agreement, and now everything is contract-based, and it's a little less community-centric and a little bit more business-like. What else have you witnessed? Well, that's sort of the way it was. It used to be, when I was a kid, well, everything was based on your word. If you wanted to sell grain, there wasn't a need for a contract. You called the local elevator, and you said, I have so many bushels of corn that I'd like to sell. What's your bid? And if you sold it, why? You just gave your word that, yeah, I'm going to bring that corn in. And when I was 17 years old, uh, my dad was out of town. I bought some cattle in town at the sale barn, and that was kind of a problem because dad wasn't there to uh, approve the purchase because I was underage. So I just went to the bank and told the president of the bank that I bought these cattle, and he said, that's fine, don't worry about it. Go ahead and get the cattle, and we'll cover the check and ask your dad to come in. <laughs> yeah. And now, you know, today... When you borrow money or when you sell grain, why there's always a contract to sign, and right. there's always an agreement. And generally, that contract isn't just a simple contract that says I agree to sell X number of bushels for this price per bushel. It's it's generally one or two or three pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is true with borrowing. Uh, when you borrow, why sometimes those uh, notes can be four, five, or six pages long with all the disclosures and and the guarantees and Simply buying seed anymore isn't simple. You don't just go to the seed dealer and and pick up the seed and pay the bill. Today you have to have a technology agreement that's a couple of pages long that tells you all the liabilities there are associated with planting that genetically engineered seed, what can happen, all the bad things that can happen to you if you don't adhere to the contract. And 
So that's a lot different. It's really paper-based and, and a, a lot of legality today. Mm-hmm. I am curious about those seed contracts, especially with the genetically engineered crops and what kinds of seeds are available to you or not. Do you have more seed variety available to you today? Well, back then, seed was all derived one way. You had varieties, say, of soybeans or hybrid corn varieties that were selectively grown. There was no such thing as genetic engineering, and all of those plants came out of a very long-term research that most seed companies did. And most of the seed companies were partnered, too, with universities. Universities were doing a lot of work developing varieties and developing hybrids that uh, could benefit farmers with better yields or maybe more disease resistance. Today, we get varieties and hybrids much the same way. They're still selectively bred, just like they were back then. But before we get the chance to buy them, most generally, once the seed companies get a hold of them, the Monsantos and the Syngentas and the, and the Dow DuPonts, they do their own genetic engineering, generally that inserts a, a gene to make them uh, resistant to insects or resistant to an herbicide. So we don't really have much opportunity to buy the very newest, very best hybrids until after those genes have been inserted. And then, of course, we have to pay not only for the new hybrid, we have to pay for the genes as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was speaking to a registered dietitian who works for Monsanto who told me that every single genetically engineered corn seed that is produced by Monsanto is coated with a neonicotinoid pesticide. And I wondered then if a farmer decided, you know, these neonicotinoids are not looking good for our pollinators. I think the science is pretty clear on that. What if you decided one day that, yes, you wanted to continue to grow corn, but you did not want to use a coated seed? Would you have those seeds available to you readily? I think most seed corn is treated, and I think that the Roundup Ready 2 soybeans are treated as well, and there's a lot of promotion done to control insects. And I will say this. In my corn, I started using an insecticide treatment, or I tried that on my corn years and years and years ago, because I'm a no-tiller. And the light treatment on the corn does protect the seed, as well as the heavy treatment, I suppose, but, but it does protect the corn, and stands are better with that. But as time goes by, our corn is genetically engineered to resist rootworms, for instance, and rootworms are becoming more and more resistant to the genes that are used in the corn. And so farmers are turning more and more to heavier applications or heavier treatments on their seed to protect them from the rootworms. So we are using more pesticide. And that's one of the things that I hear. It's one of the myths of farming today is that that genetic engineering means we use fewer pesticides. But no, it doesn't because the seeds that we plant are treated to resist herbicides and, and the weeds that we are trying to kill or the bugs are becoming more and more resistant to those genes, which means that we supplement the genes with more and more pesticide. And that's the way it's been with soybeans, and that's the way it's going with corn, too. So those hybrids don't necessarily result in fewer and fewer pesticides used. In in fact, it's quite the opposite. You have a pesticide in the genes of the plant, plus we're placing pesticides on the seed or spraying pesticides over the top or incorporating them into the soil. And so we're relying more and more on more pesticides because... All those things that we're trying to keep from eating our crop are getting stronger and stronger, and we have to fight them harder and harder. 
Mm-hmm. And has the cost of all of these additional treatments and additional pesticides and herbicides that you need to use, has the cost to you for your inputs gone up? Oh, it's incredibly expensive. I can't believe how expensive it is today. The seed is expensive. The pesticides are expensive. The need for multiple applications is increasing so that we don't just get by with one application of an herbicide like we used to. We're relying on a couple of applications or three applications. We're relying on fall or late fall or winter applications ahead of the growing season and then coming back with more applications later on. And that's part of the biggest problems in farm country today is the fact that the price of the things we grow isn't enough to return the original cost and a profit. So most farms are underwater profit-wise today if they're growing corn or soybeans simply because it costs more than we hope to make. Do you see a way out? Uh, well, I'm a farmer, and this is nothing new to me, I guess. I've done this before, and uh, I've seen low prices and poor returns, and generally something happens about the time you think you can't stand it anymore, why something happens to make it better. But right now I don't because corporations aren't willing to cut costs. They only care about profits, and they really don't yield much. And and there's a, a bigger emphasis on big farms. And by that I mean that if I have a really big farm, I can get bigger discounts. Seed companies, chemical companies treat me better if I'm a great big farmer because I use volume. And so they cut my prices because I'm a volume user. But when they cut the price for a big user for his volume, then they just sort of stack it on the little guy with very little in the way of discounts or cuts for him. And I think personally that that makes it harder for people like me and and other smaller farmers. Yeah. I had no idea that that was the situation for you. Another question I had had to do with something that you mentioned during the conference about how you are sold different chemicals. So, for example, you're told, yeah, you need to buy this chemical because it's going to increase your yield. And then you told a story about you've got a a snazzy tractor that has a yield monitor on it. So you can tell how your yields are. And does the crop indeed respond with greater production with these chemicals or not? And what did you find? Yeah, well, we had one of the first yield monitors in the country right here in my part of the country. And so ag suppliers were really interested in that and pesticide and herbicide people because we could do an in-farm, in-field analysis right on the spot as we harvested the crop to assess yields in areas that had been treated with uh, different pesticides or treated in different ways. And so I was approached by uh, a sales rep for a big chemical company who told me that he wanted me to, to apply fungicide and insecticide to my soybeans and compare. And I said, well, I'm not going to buy it, but if you want to give it to me, I'll do an in-field comparison. I'll spray strips down through the field with fungicide and insecticide and without. And if it's as good as you say it is, then when we harvest those crops, I'll be able to print out a map when I'm all done. It'll be color-coded. And if it's that good, then we should have stripes on that map where the colors reveal that there are stripes of good yields and bad yields that show the results of that treatment. So I did that. And when I did it, we got all done. We discovered that the yield was just about the same, where we treated the soybeans with fungicide and insecticide, 
and where we hadn't treated them, and in fact, where we hadn't treated was actually just just a little tiny bit better, even though what we hadn't treated didn't look as good. It wasn't as bright a green. The yield was about the same or just a hair better. Wow. And so I I gave that map to the sales rep, and I, I said, here, it didn't work. And he said, well, that can't be right. And I said, well, it is right. This shows that there's no advantage. And when I spoke to an agronomist that com- worked for the company later on, who I knew, who wasn't involved with marketing, uh, she said the same thing. She said, well, yeah, actually, our research shows that there's not a big advantage to spraying fungicide on soybeans, but that's not part of the marketing strategy used by the company overall. So the company agronomist understands that there's no benefit to using the fungicide, and yet they continue to sell it because it helps drive their bottom line, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, they have a product to sell, and they'll do whatever they can to sell it. It's it's just a hard sell. Yeah. And farmers get the hard sell all the time. We're told if you spend a dollar, you'll get $2 return. And so we have all these things that that are marketed to us that cost us a dollar that's supposed to make us two dollars. And then we're we're worried that if we don't use this, somehow maybe our crop won't be as good. We have all these extra things that we can add to the crop that might make us some money. And we worry what might happen if we don't add them to our inputs. Right. And, and it might affect our bottom line. But that's just one of the difficult parts about being a farmer because you have people who you respect who seem to be authorities and they're telling you do this do that and you think that somehow they must know more about it than you do but too many times that's just a corporate strategy designed to boost sales and create demand for a product that has sort of a doubtful benefit to the crop we're trying to grow absolutely and that's not even having a conversation about what that fungicide might be doing to soil organisms, you know, the unintended consequences on non-target organisms. That's a whole other conversation, I think. But I want to just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and my guest today is Mr. Richard Oswald, who is a full-time farmer. He is also a writer, a poet, and he is the president of Missouri Farmers Union and sits on the board of directors of the Organization for Competitive Markets. Is there anything else you want to say about the relationship between some of these inputs, the fungicides, the pesticides, the herbicides, and what goes on in the soil? Anything else you've witnessed biologically on the farm related to these inputs? Well, basic genetics, the kind of genetics that we get with conventional breeding, are really where we've always derived the best benefit. And genetic engineering is well known. One of the first terms that I learned Years and years ago, oh gee, back in the late 90s, when I was working with an agronomist for a seed company, and, and we were actually trying these new genetically engineered hybrids on the farm. And we were comparing them and, and comparing the genetically engineered hybrids to the just the conventional hybrids that were the base stock for what the genetically engineered hybrids came from. And back then, most generally, the basic hybrid that hadn't been genetically engineered would be the best yielder. But occasionally you'd find a genetically engineered crop that would be better. And the term that the agronomist used was, well, that's a good conversion. There are good conversions, he said, and there are bad conversions. If you get a bad conversion, it's going to yield less than the parent stock. And if you get a good conversion, it might yield a little bit more. But here's the thing that the seed company doesn't know when they create these hybrids 
whether it's going to be a good conversion or a bad conversion. And since they've spent their money developing all of them, then they market all of them. And they really don't tell the farmer if this is going to be a good conversion for him or a bad conversion. But the farmer is paying the technology fee on that seed just the same as if it were good or bad. And the other thing I've noticed is that if there is a conventional hybrid, one that hasn't been genetically engineered, that's a particularly strong hybrid and it's a particularly new hybrid, Sometimes those are the most expensive ones because the companies recognize that that's where the best yield comes from and that many times the farmer doesn't need that genetically engineered hybrid. He just wants a good yield. Right. So sometimes they charge the most for a hybrid that doesn't even have a technology agreement on it or is genetically engineered. Mm-hmm. And with regard to seed saving, I know that you're not allowed to save seed that's genetically engineered, and I actually have seen one of these contracts it's pretty scary. It sounds pretty threatening if you decide that you want to save some of your seeds. How has that changed? There used to be seed cleaners and more seed dealers throughout rural America. Tell me what's happened in that area. Well, it's pretty much uh, destroyed a cottage industry of seed cleaners and small seed companies that made a business of just growing public varieties of soybeans or corn and marketing direct to farmers, it's pretty much done away with that. There's no such thing as a seed cleaner. And and I've read things and heard things that said that uh, those small seed cleaners were actually targeted by one company in particular, who I'm not going to say, but we all know who it is, and and they were targeted because this company knew that there was no way to keep those genes completely out of public varieties or, or conventional varieties of soybeans in particular. And so they'd go out and they'd check the seed that that seed cleaner was working, and if they found that Roundup Ready gene, then that fellow would be prosecuted and threatened. And so that he sold his seed cleaner. It's done away with that. And it's kept me from saving seed out of my bin. There were a couple of times back in the 70s and the 80s when I could have planted soybean seed directly from the bin, and I did plant it back then because I could only sell soybeans for $5 a bushel, and yet seed was costing me so back in those days, a couple of dollars a bushel more, but but I could actually make my seed cost $5 instead of $7 just by backing the planter up to that bin and, and putting soybeans in it, my own soybeans, in it and planting them. I did that, but I can't do it today because if I do it today, I'm going to be sued, and the, the usual judgment is about five crops, five years of hard work paid back to Monsanto or whoever owns the patent for me using their seeds without a technology agreement or without paying them for them. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for consumers to understand what is happening in farming country to help understand just the kind of bind farmers are in these days. The other thing that's going on, even more so with these the new consolidation deals, in fact, I had been in Washington, D.C. and attended one of the Senate judiciary hearings about consolidation where the heads of Bayer and Monsanto and Dow and DuPont and Syngenta were talking about their plans to consolidate. So Bayer and Monsanto will become one company. Syngenta is going to join with ChemChina, and DuPont and Dow are going to come together. And at this hearing, some of our representatives even said to the heads of the companies, I don't think this is good for farmers because it's going to drive the cost of seed up even more. 
And their response was, we have to join together because the farmer needs this kind of innovation that we could bring with these consolidation agreements. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that as a farmer, I'm competing with all my neighbors and with all the other farmers in the world to grow a crop as cheaply as I can grow it and market as well as I can market it in order to make a dollar. And these companies are saying that they have to exist in a completely different uh, environment. They're saying that the less competition they have, the better they're going to do and the better it is for me. But I don't see any desire on the part of my government to enforce these antitrust laws. And so the government, my government, and these companies both are saying there's no such thing as competition anymore. We're all just working for the common good of man. And you just let us get big and we'll come up with some great stuff. But the way we got to where we are today in agriculture and a lot of other areas in the United States and around the world is through competition. And the history books are full of examples of what happens when you eliminate competition and you let a handful or one or two big corporations control everything. And it's never good, and it's not good now. And quite frankly, those companies who say they have to be that big in order to do what has to be done are just BSing me and you and the federal government because that's just not true. That's not the way it is. And they're also saying that I have to feed the world, that the world population is going to grow, and the only way we're going to feed those people is if we have these more and more expensive varieties and plants that we're going to grow, chemicals that we're going to use. But as the world population grows, the people who are going to multiply the fastest are going to be the people who don't have money to buy food. Right. So more and more expensive crops, more and more expensive ways of doing things is not going to feed people who are destitute and impoverished because they aren't going to have the money to pay for it either. Exactly. Yeah, we consumers and dietitians are often told that we need this new technology to feed the world and that America's farmers are feeding the world. And I'm really glad to hear your perspective. As a corn and soybean farmer, well, you do hay as well, but growing those basic commodity crops, for the consumer to hear that your perspective is, you know, actually we're not feeding the world and here's why, I think that's really important. Well, yes, yes. American farmers need to worry about feeding America. Yeah. And more and more through free trade agreements and other accommodations, we aren't feeding our own countrymen. We aren't feeding the United States anymore. And we aren't feeding the world because we don't produce enough to feed the United States and the world. But what we are doing is we're being forced to compete more and more with Brazil, South America, Mexico, Canada, and We are denied the ability to label the things we grow as we are with beef so that now we are seeing more imports coming into this country from Brazil, more from Canada, more from Mexico, and they're unlabeled. And our countrymen don't even know when they're buying beef, if it's U.S. beef or or where it came from. And uh, that's really hurt the U.S. beef producer, especially in the last year or two. Beef prices, people probably aren't aware of it by going to the store and buying beef because they haven't seen a big decline in prices in beef in the store, but what the U.S. beef producer has seen is a huge decline in his profitability in the last year. And USDA uh, just recently allowed beef imports from Brazil that are coming in now, 
even though Brazil has foot and mouth disease. And that's another risk for American producers as we have more and more of these imported products coming in, especially from the third world. There's the possibility that diseases that American cattlemen defeated 100 years ago may suddenly be back in the United States, carried in on those loads of imported beef. Well, Mr. Oswald, what would you like consumers to do? You know, I feel that consumers really do want to work with farmers, and I don't know a single consumer that wouldn't want to buy directly from a farmer that they know, and certainly buy beef that is raised in this country. And I think most consumers, if you say, you know, your beef is coming from all of these other countries and we're not producing our own, they'd say, you're crazy. But it's true, without that country of origin labeling, when we go into a supermarket, we have no idea where our meat is coming from. That was not a consumer-driven change to labeling. I want to know, of course, who is really benefiting from this arrangement, but also what can we do to help you? Well, you know, when we lost country of origin labeling, there were a lot of people in, in my business who thought the U.S. consumer would just rise up in arms. And they wouldn't accept that. And so my organization, Farmers Union, saw this coming, and we tried to at least preserve voluntary labeling. Because if we had preserved voluntary country of origin labeling, we would have at least had the guidelines remain in effect so that there was an outline of of what was and what wasn't U.S. produced, what was and what wasn't a domestic product. And what we saw was that the consumers didn't even realize what they'd lost. Mm. There was no uprising of consumers. There was no outpouring of sympathy for the U.S. beef producer or farmers because they just didn't realize what had happened. There was no change in availability in anything in the store and, and really no apparent change in anything in the store. So people need to start asking questions. They need to go into the grocery store and they need to ask, what is this and where did it come from? And they also need to go out and get to know a farmer. I I know, and I've written about a lot of farmers who have capitalized on this industrial food supply that we have in the United States by selling direct to consumers. And more and more farmers are becoming aware of the fact that there are consumers who would prefer that kind of product. So I think the, the best thing that consumers can do is ask the managers of their grocery stores about how they source those meat products in particular, but also uh, go out and actively seek farmers and farm locally grown products, uh, farm products that where they can actually meet the farmer. And and I've talked to consumers in New York City, and that's the most important thing in the world to them when they go to a farmer's market. When you talk to those consumers – They'll say the most important thing to them is to be able to walk up and be face-to-face with the farmer who grew that food and ask him if it's good and if it's safe. And that's what local consumers, all consumers, should be able to do, and that would help us, I think, we farmers the most. Well, I want to thank you, Mr. Oswald, for being my guest and explaining what it is like on the farm and giving consumers a charge, a mission to work together and make a more community-based food system that supports everyone well, supports public health and the health of the farmer and your economic as well as environmental situation on the farm. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Richard Oswald, a farmer, a columnist, as well as a poet. 
And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mr. Oswald, thank you so much again for spending time with me. And I will make sure that our listeners have a link to dailyyonder.com so that they can read a little bit more about what it's like to be on the farm and to face today's pressures. Thank you. Okay, Melinda, thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and I hope we do it again sometime. 